the fourth episode of the second season of Crypto with English. And today, we're going to go into a slightly different topic. You know, lately we've been covering machine learning AI, we've been covering finance and Coinbase and really what the future of regulation looks like in both the US and in the EU. However, um, today's little, you know, trip, so to say, is going to be focused on higher education within Web3 blockchain spaces. So, you know, you think of a MBA or you think of a just general master's degree, you know, there's a lot of critique nowadays as far as, well, what is the value of an advanced degree? And, you know, according to research and scholarship done on the matter, uh, a lot of traditional MBAs or a lot of traditional master's degrees have not kept up with the ever-changing fast times that we're living in right now. So, you know, listen, the MBA one may be taking this year is more or less, according to, let's say, certain skeptics, researchers, and people who have you know, various opinions on it, it's of the same mold as MBAs have been for 30 years. So I'd like to introduce to you all today a very interesting, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a very interesting guest, Ludovica Turconi. She is a lecturer at Nucleo uh, Digital, Digital University, and she teaches a master's in blockchain technology. So she's been in the space since 2019 as both a participant and as a Web3 advocate. So today, what I'd like to do is unpack the master's degree of blockchain because on the surface, it appears to be something that is keeping up with the times. And today, we're going to look at how it is keeping up with the times. So Ludovica, thank you very much for coming on to the show today. And my personal sentiment is, given the way things are changing, it is going to have to be essential, if not almost mandatory, for any major university to cover this Web3 decentralized technology in some sort of advanced degree because the market is going to demand it from professionals, you know, in the, you know, in the future. So I'm very excited to see what the learning and education process is. And, and I know, you know, you as the lecturer of this program based in Barcelona and Madrid, where there's a lot of exciting Web3 projects and, you know, ventures going on. I'd like to, you know, deep dive into, you know, some of these things today. So listen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for the lovely introduction, first of all. Great to be here, and let's dive into it. I'm really excited to speak about this topic today. Sure. So, my first question is, so as a lecturer of a blockchain master's degree program, what does that course load look? You know, what does that course load look like for the average student who is taking this master's degree program in blockchain? So, what subjects would you start out with? Like, what's going to be on the syllabus, so to say? Yeah, well, first of all, it's important to say that we have, as it's something completely new, uh, it's something that has been around for around 10 years, uh, we really need to take some precautions with the students. I mean, um, different students come on board on the master's with different both expectations and prior experience. Therefore, we really try to start from the most basic level, uh, starting to introduce, well, blockchain technology for what it is, 
uh, but also uh, not only on the technical side, but also on the more philosophical uh, point of view. Uh, whereas we try to um, unbox and unpack the whole history also behind Bitcoin and how um, it could potentially be disruptive uh, for the world that we know today. And then Nuclear Digital School, what we try to do uh, is to kind of create the minds that will shape the industry of tomorrow. Uh, therefore, we after um, understanding the basics, we touch upon different topics. Um, those can be either uh, marketing in Web3, creating ecosystems and creating a community, uh, more strategic things like tokenomics that are more technical, uh, more theoretical, uh, or also uh, DAOs. And we have this um, part of the course, which is called Business Track, and it is uh, focused on how we integrate business, uh, how we integrate blockchain technology into business today. So we have classes that are more easygoing, like for example, gamification, like how to uh, keep customer uh, retention or employee engagement through gamification using blockchain technology. So it's really widespread. Very interesting. And, you know, it, it seems like you hit on a lot of the fundamentals that anybody would have to know as far as understanding the space. What are the practical business applications? How do you properly market, like, let's say, a decentralized app or let's say even an NFT token? And then, you know, understanding the history. And I think that's good. You know, history gives a lot of context to this space. And knowing that history is you know, absolutely you know, essential. So it, I'm very you know, happy to hear that that's covered. So going off of that, in your opinion, what blockchain subjects tend to be easier for students to learn? If you could you know, give an opinion on that. Yeah, something that is more easy to learn, I believe, are those subjects that kind of touch upon the prior uh, knowledge that students in business have today, so for example, marketing, or more abstract things like we were saying gamification, which are pretty intuitive. As you can see, they, both the effects and the use cases uh, in our daily professional, but also personal life. Um, some classes, right. on the other hand, that are a bit harder to understand are those that um, comprehend um, new topics. So some, for example, the technical aspects of blockchain technologies and NFTs, uh, there's, there's some basic knowledge that you need to understand, of course, before you can um, exploit your critical thinking and understand uh, how to integrate that with what we have already uh, in the business world. Um, so yeah, that requires a lot of critical thinking and Right. Could be one of the hardest things. All right. Very, very interesting. And what about coverage on, let's say, you know, metaverse and metaverse related issues? Does that come into play in this master's program? Yes, definitely. And that's also something that we see the students are super interested about, also because the metaverse is the buzzword of 2022, 2023. Right. Yeah, it always right. comes up. 
especially for example in a class that I teach uh, that is called creating ecosystems where we really try to um, put emphasis on the importance of the interconnectivity uh, within the crypto world. So how to create an interconnected ecosystem uh, around a specific project to be able to be integrated in the token economy. Uh, and that comprehend, uh, is comprehensible um, a way into um, the new disruptive world of uh, metaverse and virtual reality and all of that. Right. So as part as part of the semester, you know, obviously you have to create a syllabus and you have to have, you know, materials that students are going to have to use in order to learn and let's say memorize for an exam or a midterm and things like that. So when teaching this, what are your sources? What do you use? Like, are there any books that you uh, include in the syllabus? Are there any articles? Uh, things like that. Yeah. Well, for the sessions, we create specific presentations that kind of abide with the way of teaching that Nucleus tried to promote. Um, so that's a very interactive way of teaching and learning, something that is not only the professor or the lecturer speaking, but uh, we try to really connect and create a synergetic class where everyone can have something to bring to the table, right? Also because our students, most of them are professionals already. Um, therefore, right. uh, we try to create conversations uh, and so on. As per the materials, personally, uh, I really like to, uh, at the end of every class, to read a, and analyze a white paper of a different... Oh, excellent. Yeah, so we really try to go to the source. Uh, and that also uh, because with the masters, the scope uh, at the end uh, as we really try to promote entrepreneurship is for the students to create a project of their own in whichever uh, area of Web3 they like um, that draws their interest the most. And they'll right. have to create a white paper for their project and the pitch deck to well, attract potential investors. So there's something we try to analyze a lot, but also there are some great readings, uh, like scholar articles um, that, of course, we give as extra, um, how to say, uh, as extra materials uh, for the students to read uh, if they want to uh, explore furtherly certain topics that uh, they're interested in, apart from what's taught in class. Well, I have to say, you know, major kudos uh, to you as an instructor for having students read specific white papers. In fact, I would say the best way to learn about a Web3 decentralized blockchain project is actually through reading white papers, which are you know, essentially the blueprint you know, created by the founding team as to what they wish to create. I was on a television show two years ago where I would review white papers and projects in real time. And I've probably gone through hundreds of them. And I will say, when you go through those, you start to recognize patterns, so to say. So, you know, good ones, or you could say more, you could say projects with a higher likelihood of success. They have certain things going for them. 
And you could say the terrible and shit ones, you know, they have a pattern too, you know, and, you know, and, and unfortunately, uh, you know, more projects tend to fail than succeed. It's just, you know, mathematical probability. So, you know, like I said, having students read white papers, and, and, I, and I would say this as, you know, both a, say, a professional or a podcaster, a speaker, and whatever else, but reading white papers is one of the most effective ways of understanding what, what a project is about. You have to look at all different types of details. You got to look at the, the founding team. Who are these people? You have to look at the, you could say, the mission statement for their product. What is the aim for it? And if they have a token, how many of those tokens are in circulation? And who owns, let's say, some or most of those tokens? And is there, is there let's say, a condition where there's going to be a limit on the tokens or if there's not going to be a limit? You know, these are all very important things to do. So, listen, you know, uh, listen, like I said, great job in having, you know, the students do that. And talk about critical thinking. I'll tell you this. I think even if you are experienced or let's say you can credibly call yourself an expert in the space, it still requires critical thinking to go through those. Whether you're new at it or whether you've read hundreds of them, it still requires the same critical thinking skill sets that you know any of us would need to have a clear answer. You know, on that. So um, I can I can only imagine, you know, uh, how both you could say stimulating and probably a little difficult your classes. Are you known to be a difficult grader or are you known as the tough teacher over there? Now I'm curious. <laughs> no, I to be honest, uh, coming from my experience with education and uh, university, I've been through it myself. I kind of try to make it. Um, as I wanted it to be when I was there. Uh, I tried to make it very, um, how to say it? I tried to create time blocks uh, sure. during the class and divide it through a part that is more theoretical, where to the topics that are covered, they will actually have to study and memorize, understand, and then you know process in order um, to be able to understand them their own way and also put right. them in their own way. And then parts that are more um, um, engaging, uh, as we said, like reading a white paper together, seeing what we think about it, uh, having conversation about specific topics that are maybe more um, timely to that class. So I don't know if there's a specific event uh, in the crypto industry. We try to analyze that as well. Um, so no, I don't believe I'm a difficult teacher, but... Um, Everything that I have learned, uh, I never went through a master's degree for uh, cryptocurrency. Everything that I have learned, it was kind of out of questions that I used to ask, out of my own curiosity. And that made me very um, passionate about stuff like, for example, as you were saying, like understanding tokenomics, so allocation, distribution, supply, sure. try to understand that in, in order to able to evaluate project yourself to be able to apply to your own project to make it fit for the long term um therefore i might be a bit um heavy on those topics as i like them pretty much myself but uh no i don't believe i'm a hard teacher okay 
Interesting. So going off of that, obviously you have to teach this in front of groups, small and large alike. So when you started as a lecturer for this program, how did you teach yourself materials? You know, especially, and the reason why I ask this is because, you know, especially in 2023, as society is becoming more aware of a you know variety of learning styles, and you know one of the terms is neurodivergent or neurodivergence. Everybody, for the most part, they have slight differences or like deviations in learning. And I know for a fact there's easier ways for me to memorize something than others. So I'll tell you I'll tell you an example for myself. The easiest way, or at least one of the easiest ways for me to memorize things is, I guess you could say, almost through uh, kinesthetic or kinetic memory. So if I write something on a whiteboard, I instantly memorize it. However, if I have to, let's say, read it out of a book, I'm not going to memorize the whole thing like the first, you know, the first time. And I think it's not either. It's probably not stimulating enough. But that's, you know, that's why there's different learning styles. So. You know, as somebody who's interested in this, I am curious as far as how do you teach yourself? You know, as a teacher or as a lecturer, how do you teach yourself so you can be comfortable to teach students? Yeah. So as I was saying before, uh, everything for me in the crypto industry started back in 2019. And it all came from my curiosity. I read something about Bitcoin one day. And the day after, I was going to conferences, trying to have meetings with people in the industry. And I ended up being able to um, sit down one-on-one with high-class executives in the industry just by being able to ask the right questions. So sure. most of the things that I know, uh, I learned through asking questions and being open to share what I knew in order to also gain some knowledge from the other people. And that's something that I love about the crypto industry as well. Um, when you speak to people in Web3, they're very keen in sharing their opinions, sharing their view, uh, sharing their knowledge. And that's something that made me feel part um, of something um, right from the beginning. And it made me involved right away, made me feel involved right away. Um, and as for teaching um, in front of people, um, I was very, very scared at the beginning. Uh, public speaking, to be honest, is not my thing. I remember my first job interview, classic question, what's your biggest weakness? Public speaking. <laughs> well, after one Yet year. you are a lecturer. So listen, I think you're not giving yourself enough credit. To be fair to you. You're probably a lot better at it than I think you're giving yourself uh, credit for, to say the least. I think it, that it's a lot of practice, you know, being able to um, accept being uh, putting yourself outside of your comfort zone in order to grow. Knowing that you have a weakness or something that you need to work on and having the courage of going there in the spot and just try to do it, you know. Try to nail it and sometimes you won't sometimes you will um think you <laughs> you're i don't know not doing it in the right way can you hear me yes i can hear you yes please uh, 
think my other screen disconnected. Sorry. Sometimes you might okay. think you're in the right way, but there's always a way for improvement, and it's just trust in the process. Well, you know, perhaps this could be both an educational and life lesson. But let's say, you know, to your point, if something like public speaking is something that you're not entirely comfortable with, you know, it's a greater success in the fact that, listen, you actively look, face that fear. You're a lecturer at any master's program. So what is more spot on than, you know, speaking to a large group of intelligent professionals? So, you know, listen, in the, in the general game of life and education, I think you're teaching a lesson right there. You know, facing, I think, the things that you're uncomfortable with, these things will make you a better per person, professional. Listen, it's going to make you a better student. It's going to almost unlock these other things in you that you otherwise may have not have had. So, listen, you know, I, I, think, you're, I think you're teaching a lot of great lessons apart from, let's say, just the Web3 and blockchain subjects. Yeah, thank you very much. I think the whole uh, experience that I've had being a lecturer, which I never thought of uh, as a professional path before, um, has been very much, um, I don't know, it gave me a lot. I learned a lot from it. Uh, it was very nice to know. It was very good to know that I was able to share my knowledge with other people. And just, it was very satisfying. Um, it's something that gives you a lot. Right. And, you know, that, that's wonderful. And, you know, listen, for many people I know who are teachers, lecturers, and, you know, different either college programs or programs of, you know, higher education, like an advanced degree, like a master's and things like that, I always keep hearing from them of this very deep sense of fulfillment, I guess you could say teaching other people, let's say a new skill, or teaching somebody new information that they can now apply. It's essentially like almost an additional lens to look at life with. And, you know, perhaps with such an additional lens, you can see things clearer, you can see more things, and you could probably make use out of even the little things that you see. So, you know, listen, you know, I can, I can only imagine, you know, kind of the success or you can almost say the gratification one can feel when, listen, you're, you're teaching a classroom of smart professionals, and now you're making them smarter and more efficient. So, you know, yeah. like I said, I can, I can imagine, you know, that, that must be an incredible feeling. But that, to be honest, it also goes both ways. You know, there has been many insights and many different points of views that we were able to raise and discuss in class that made sure. me as a professional as well like mm, i feel like throughout um the time that i have been a lecturer i have improved a lot and i was able to uh, nail new techniques in order to make the students feel more engaged and more keen on participating in class um and i think that that uh, resulted in just very interesting discussions and then mm, really synergetic conversations where everyone was uh, stating their opinion that was coming from their different backgrounds that they had, different professional experience that they've had. 
And yeah, I believe that it was a very multilateral um, growing of everyone. Right. So you mentioned techniques. So could you share one or two of those techniques that have helped you essentially teach more effectively or helped you communicate information in an easier way? Yeah. So surely uh, one of those is trying to um, beforehand at the beginning of the class, uh, stating all the topics we're going to go through so that the students are going to have a general opinion and they're going to be able to try to make up their minds and understand what we're going to go through throughout the whole class. Um, and also, um, every micro topic, every, yeah, every micro topic that we go through, try to link it with something that they surely know in the business world. So business cases. Business cases have helped me a lot, uh, especially the most uh, recent um, the most recent things that have happened in the industry. Uh, surely they were super interested in speaking about it. And that was um, super helpful in kind of review, reviewing all the topics that uh, we have gone through. And then, as I said before, um, I taught um, gamification. And also through that, I learned a lot uh, because now I try to make my classes as gamified as possible. So I follow this. Oh, wow. Yeah, I try to follow this principle that um, it's called the eight core drives, and basically it's a framework uh, where there are listed the eight reasons um, of why people do things, and these can be like um, unpredictability or uh, rewards or a higher calling. And I try to integrate those in the style of teaching um, in order to make it like a game, you know, uh, to make everyone more uh, keen on participating. I have to say that's a very special dynamic way of teaching. And to be honest, it reflects the upcoming future trend of this space, gamification. In fact, you know, we're already starting to see things like that happening and, you know, in, in finance and, in, you know, and across other industries. You know, gamifying things keeps individuals more engaged, more present, you know, in the moment. So, you know, whether it's, you know, work or play, if it's gamified, you're going to increase kind of the effectiveness of all the participants because there is a clear reward and expectation to let's say each challenge along the way exactly and that's something that we can kind of integrate and we can also see already in a lot of parts of our life whether that is um education health or even i don't know managing personal finances that's something that for example i do I implemented gamification in every aspect of my life as I try to keep up with everything. And at some point, I just run out of energy for doing the little things that I'm supposed to be doing. Sure. And kind of trick that, you can kind of hack that through gamifying it. Right. It's, it is kind of a way to hack your own mind, so to say, especially if you're doing something 
and it's the same thing over and over again repeatedly, your mind is essentially going to get bored and look at it as something stale or something that's not generating either a lot of feedback or you know, stimulation. So, you know, I, uh, I totally appreciate and, and kind of value the strategy in that as far as, you know, gamifying these things, because that is how you keep people, you know, as they say, you keep people in the game. They're not going to get bored. They're not going to get complacent or lazy because, you know, there is an active challenge. There is an active reward and probably has to do a lot with just the way we as humans are wired, so to say. Yeah. And it's sad to say, but it kind of is the harsh reality that our, us as humans, our attention span in the last few years, with all the dopamine that we can find around has just decreased enormously. And now both companies for their clients or their employees or ourselves uh, to keep us motivated, keep ourselves motivated. We need to find ways to keep the attention from all the noise that there is around, right? Yeah. And I am very curious to see what those statistics are going to look like in the next five to 10 years. And, you know, as you've mentioned, the overall attention span of people across the world, yeah, you know, many aspects of technology, you know, I think social media tends to be Know, the yeah uh, the biggest uh, you know or problematic and uh, are you sorry yeah I'm sorry Adam I think I lost your con- the connection for a second but uh, I can hear you okay no it's it's no problem I was you know just more, more or less saying that you know social media has often been blamed and you know listen there's a lot of research behind it for being responsible for the overall decrease in attention span over time. And I think one of the biggest challenges will be how do you how do you essentially have gamified technology that over time is going to make people more intelligent and more productive? And then how do you balance that out against, let's say, the technology that's either that's going to overstimulate people and let's say increase you know anxiety or it's going to increase kind of other other bad things. I would imagine that's going to ha- that's going to be one of the big problems you yeah. know coming up. I mean it more or less already is, but I th- think we're going to see and hear either more research and more things come out about that. Yes, definitely. It's, there's a big ethical question around it, you know, like for example in the biggest gamification techniques you can all find them in social media like Instagram, you know, with the scrolling, the right. like creating your profile and literally gamification, its definition is taking game mechanics and apply them to non-play environments in order to stimulate a certain behavior. And the ethical question is, where do we draw the line between which behavior it is right to promote and which is just sure. unsustainable, like social media? Yeah, that's that's going to be a very, very important question. 
that you can say society and companies are going to, you know, have to you know, have to figure out. And, you know, there is a lot of research backing, you could say, you know, overstimulation from blue light, you know, emitted from, you know, your iPhones and other things, you know, especially by virtue of like, you know, social media platforms, these do, you know, they, they change the chemistry of your head, especially in children. You know, um, it's, it, it's going to be one of the, I think it's going to be one of the big problems that need to be solved. I don't know if it is going to be solved. Uh, I guess we'll see. I mean, I hope it, I hope something, I hope it is solved, at least in some way. Yeah, definitely. It's like with every other technology, right? Like there can be a great use out of it that can promote a faster evolution, a faster pace of innovation for humankind, but also it brings with it its consequences that are certainly harmful. And that's one of the reasons why actually I invest so much in teaching and educating and advocating for certain technology and for their specific use. Because I believe that education is the best way uh, to promote the right use of this technology and avoid uh, something um, that is extremely hard, harmful, like the consequences that we're seeing in young generations with social media and things like that. And since we are talking about all of this technology, so in this master's programs at uh, Nucleo Digital School, how many classes do you teach? Like, what does your week look like? How many hours and what type of assignments and, like, you know, examinations are you doing? Yeah, so it's nothing that is fixed, as we usually give uh, a, cl a single class of, well, yeah, a class lasts around three hours. Uh, and throughout the course, they have, of course, class uh, every week, uh, around two, three times a week. And except for some specific subjects, which we like to dive in more, uh, we usually do one subject per class. Uh, I mean, one class per subject. And the classes that I personally teach are tokenomics, gamification, uh, creation of communities, uh, creation of ecosystems, um, Bitcoin genesis, um, the other class on meme coins and shit coins. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. listen, you know, that's an interesting topic. What is your opinion on meme coins and shit coins, by the way? Uh, I, I think I just try to see it in a very philosophical way. I, kind of the scream of a community, right? Uh, I think that crypto and Web3 uh, put a lot of power in the hands of the community, and we can see them exerting it in different ways. And the word meme actually was coined by a biologist uh, back okay. in the day, in, I believe it was in the 70s. And it is its definition, he used that word to, um, comes from the word mimic. Uh, so basically, it's a something right and it became so widespread because uh, memes as we know them today are something that don't need any words don't they kind of kill every language barrier and they're just easy to understand and that's why they became so popular right they 
with some concepts that we all know uh, in a way that everyone can understand. And right. Knights community, and many times they have meaning behind them, which might appear stupid. Sometimes they are, <laughs> but <laughs> sure, of course. <laughs> but just by analyzing the phenomenon of shit coins in general, uh, we can see kind of a trend of the community saying something, right? Of gaining power somehow. Sure. Yeah, and. Listen, whether it's a, a meme coin, shit coin, or you could say a true store of value, let's say something like Bitcoin, it seems to me that the common thread is that you do need to have a powerful, you know, energized community behind it. That seems to be the common link, you know, from the good projects and you could almost say the, the bad ones. Like, you know, I, I guess when I say bad ones, you, I, I would say like the, the ones that cause harm to people. Like, you know, you think of rug pulls, you think of like, you know, pump and dumps and things like that. Yeah. Even those required a community. You know, of course, it's a community used in a very, very bad way. But, you know, certainly I think it's just unlike anything else in history, it seems. But that somehow can also be considered as the price of decentralization, right? Of course, within the right. industry, there's different people who have different opinions about how they see the industry growing, right? The blockchain trilemma, will we want it more secure, more decentralized, more scalable? Right. We all have different opinions, right? Uh, yeah. For example, what do you personally think, also from a legal perspective, uh, about this type of, of tokens. I mean, if me or you could go now on the internet and create a token and list it on PancakeSwap in probably one minute, create liquidity, do some marketing, and boom, it's done. Should it be regulated, perhaps? Sure. So um, that's your question to me. Should that be regulated? Yeah. That, that's a very good question. And, and I think it depends. So, and I, I think it depends on, you could say, who the mouthpiece of that project is. And what I mean by that is, I think if you're an individual or if you're a project that has a very large audience and following across social media, and it's clear that, you know, coins need to have a following, they need to have a community. I think if you're someone with a large audience, then I think you have a duty to not harm people. So, you know, you know, there's a lot of examples out there, especially with BitBoy and the, the Ben coin, you know, for instance, you know, if you're somebody with a large audience, and if let's say you're promoting a meme coin, I think there is a big risk that if you're not clear, if you're not giving accurate information, if you're saying you could say very outrageous things on social media, you're going to take large groups of people and kind of steer them in whatever direction you want, like a car. So if you're, let's say, a big figure or somebody with a big voice and you're coming out with a meme coin and you get all of these people to buy it, but let's say because it's a meme coin and meme coins you know, are very volatile in of themselves, you know, listen, they could 
10x, 100x one, one day, and they can go to zero the next. I think if, you know, like I said, if you're a figure and you're doing that, I, I think you're violating that duty. I think you're harming people by telling people, large groups of people that you have influence over, to buy something like a meme coin. Because it seems to me out of all of the, you could say, coins out there, whether it's, you know, Bitcoin and altcoins and all this other stuff, the meme coins are by far, you know, the most, uh, you know, you could say explosive, they're the most volatile, you know, out of, out of all of them. You know, it's not like the Ethereum token, which, I mean, yes, on one hand, it is a token. But on the other hand, it's also a vehicle to make decentralized applications. So I think for most people, you know, the value there is clear. And by the way, even Bitcoin, you know, as volatile as it is, it's a store of value and it's never, let's say, pretended to be something else. You know, I think everybody knows what they're getting into generally, you know, if you're, let's say, getting Bitcoin. Now, don't get me wrong. I think if you're a person, if it's, you know, me or you, listen, I think someone like you and I should know better <laughs> not to like, you know, hey, let me take all of my money and put it into a meme coin. Uh, however, you know, when there's times in history, whether it's in Europe and the United States, when, you know, the economy is bad, it's easier to fool people because people get desperate. So if you're, let's say, a big public figure and you are promoting a meme coin in a recession, I think that makes you a bad actor. And I think, uh, I think whatever trouble comes around the corner, you're going to have to be responsible for it. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I completely agree. So I think it comes. Yeah. So I think it comes down to what what degree or what capacity for influence do you have? It's like, listen, if you if you have a let's say a community or a following of let's say fifty people, and listen, with certain platforms you can create you can create your own coins at will. You could promote. You could shill, as they say that token all day, you're not going to really influence or change much. You know, people who are, let's say, already going to be buying things, you know, they may choose that one. They may choose something else that's more popular. But like I said, if you're somebody who has a big platform and a big voice and you're somebody that could control large audiences, you know, to let's say buy or not buy something, then I think that's when, you know, your duty is higher than, let's say, the average person. Yeah. That's how I, that's how I um, you know, conceptualize it. So, you know, you're going to hear about, you know, things like, you know, BitBoys, you know, Bencoin, and you're going to hear about, you know, other things. Listen, I'm not going to assume what's in the hearts and minds of somebody. But I'll tell you this. Let's say if you're not being uh, malicious. But what if you're just careless and you're saying this? That's also a very bad thing. And I would say if you're somebody who has a large amount of influence, you should still know better, in my opinion. Definitely. As they say, with great power comes great responsibility, right? Well, exactly. You know, as, as, you know, as, uh, you know, widely, as widely quoted, you know, Spider-Man phrase, it is absolutely 
It is absolutely correct. You know, and especially where if you're a big voice, things that you say are going to be interpreted as financial advice. So if you're somebody with a big audience, you have to be very clear. You know, is this financial advice or not? And the problem is a lot of these a lot of these figures, you know, they're not clear about it. And in some ways, this is in many ways a get rich quick kind of, you know, kind of scheme. And, you know, people, you know, people will end up, you know, getting getting hurt because of that. So, you know, I think it's kind of a sliding scale. Like I said, if you're somebody with one follower, yeah, listen, you could you can go on a variety of platforms. You can create five million coins of nothing. And yeah, maybe you could go write some stuff out there. The likelihood of somebody paying attention, the likelihood of somebody trusting that advice is extremely low. But listen, if you're on TikTok with a audience of 5 million people and you're on Twitter with an audience of at least like over a half a million, well, that's a, that's a much different story. And, you know, that is assuming, let's say all those followers are not bots. Let's, you know, assume that they're all people. Well, like if you're saying stuff, I think you have to be very clear and very careful about, about what you say. Because, you know, as you said, with great power comes great responsibility. Well, the great power is in being able to influence large amounts of people. And the responsibility is you should not be harming those people. So that's where, you know, that would be my, you know, that, that would be my, you know, I guess you could say line when it, you know, when, when it comes to that. Like, you know, like I said, you could, there could be just, you know, one guy, one woman, you know, they could just be creating coins from one of these platforms and they may have like 10 followers. They're not going to, in any likelihood, influence anybody. And listen, they might just be a crazy person just rattling off, you know, as they say, just saying stuff, you know, on, on social media. So it's, uh, I think in many ways, it's a game of scale and a game of numbers. Yeah. Agreed. But also talking about responsibility, I believe that people with influence in this industry also have the responsibility not only not to uh, harm their audience or drive them to um, unethical advice or questionable sure. advice, but also to educate because as we have said throughout the whole episode, education can, is key in, for this industry to really find its way into the real world in a way that is credible, in a way that is accessible, that is scalable. Many people don't know anything about what me and you are talking about now, but what we're doing sure. in our little bubble is contributing to, you know, uh, the industry being more out there in a positive way. Right. And, you know, listen, all of these small steps, you know, if meant and done well, they will contribute to, let's say, a better understanding or at least a better community of people in the future that will participate in the space in a, in, in a good way. So, you know, half the battle is going to be if mass adoption is going to happen. And I think for many in the space, the uh, the appreciation for let's say the the great power or you could say the great 
ability of decentralized technology and kind of the good it can do, it's, you know, it's, it's very, it's very clear. But if, if mass adoption is going to happen, the average person in the street who doesn't either understand or is not interested in it has to immediately understand what it is. Because right now we're not there, you know, and it's still going to take time. And I think we all, we all know that. But, you know, ultimately there has to be a mass, mass, mass message or a mass messaging for, you know, mass adoption. So the real, you could say, winning, the winning stroke is going to be when, you're, when your grandparents are, you know, using dApps, you know, and they're using it in a very easy, understandable way where it just makes sense immediately. Or if it's your cousins, your aunts and uncles, you know, that's where the real success is going to be. You know, listen, it's great when you have experts talk about it. However, uh, can, can the experts properly message that to everybody else? And I think that's where, the real, where one of the real, you know, battles is going to be. And I think one of the larger problems is, is that the bad events almost always get greater attention than any good that has come out, whether it's in whether it's in the EU, whether it's in the US, or whether it's in the UAE, you know, the bad events almost always get more attention. And I don't think that's an accident. And unfortunately, that's going to make things harder because the bad events, those are going to be the ones that people immediately understand. You know, that they like listen, your your family members, your relatives, your friends who let's say aren't into the space, well, all they have to do is turn on the news. And, you know, maybe they're going to, you know, they're going to see something about, you know, uh, some, you know, people using Bitcoin for, for bad purposes. You know, you hear about the SEC in the United States now filing uh, charges against Coinbase and, excuse me, and Binance.us. And then last year you have FTX, where essentially you had a group of American celebrities pump a valueless coin and people got hurt and lost money. And by the way, listen, I make no secret about this. I have a very public beef with Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank because he was one of the most popular, most, you could say, uh, he was one of the biggest figures that was actively promoting the FTX uh, token and put himself out there where he's a person of influence and he was convincing people to get something that was worthless. And listen, I think there's a lot of, you could say, circumstantial evidence to to believe that his statements were not an accident. So, you know, unfortunately, because of, let's say, FTX of last year, for months, that's what everybody, you know, focuses on. So it's not going to be that great decentralized app coming out of Spain. It's not going to be some sort of, you know, gamified NFT-based universe coming out of the UAE. People are not going to hear those headlines, unfortunately, because it's going to be, you know, the bad events that will unfortunately get more attention. So, and I think that goes back to the messaging because the messaging is, it's still, it's still not clear and it's not, it's not entirely accurate yet. Yeah. And also about this, Adam, I believe that. Uh, you know, with the media and the way that we gather our information. Of course, that 
bad events are always going to be the ones that are more clicked on. Also, because those are usually the most catastrophic ones, right? Think FTX, think Terra, Luna. Yeah. Well, on the other side, uh, the evolution of the space, the innovation and the way that it makes its way into the real world and into contributing something extremely positive uh, to our society is made of small steps, small achievements. And there are, those are just unfortunately not as visible, but right. it is what it is. Right, yeah, absolutely. And on a final note, if you can give any advice any type of guidance for somebody who doesn't know anything about this, but they want to learn. As somebody who's a lecturer, as somebody who teaches large groups of professionals in this, what advice would you give to somebody who's entirely new as far as where to get started? Because it's just, you know, listen, there's just so much information out there. I could even say, you know, if I was to take my you know, myself out of myself. It's like, if I woke up in 2023 and I wanted to learn this, I don't think I know where to start, to be honest. Yeah, definitely. I think that the first step towards learning something in kind of a complete manner, whether that's crypto, whether that's business history or anything else, whether it's philosophy, is just to have conversations with people or listen to people, read about people with contrast, uh, yeah, contrasting opinions, uh, whether they're supporting the idea that you have, whether they're going against it or whether they're proposing something completely new, you know? Right. Well, I mean, listen, any, any type of real progress starts at the basic conversation. Well, you know, a truthful conversation to be specific. And listen, you know, in fact, just the way the, the human brain works, you know, if, if I'm to teach you something or if you are to teach me something, you or I are not going to read like a textbook definition. You know, in fact, it's going to be quite the opposite. You know, we're going to have the idea in our, in our head and then it's going to be filtered into kind of a very natural, engaging, you could say, sentence or, you know, conversation piece. So, though, you know, it, it seems like this. I think if, if left alone in almost like a well-meaning or pure setting, I think the human mind and the conversation can fix a, a lot of problems and maybe more than, than we can perhaps appreciate. Definitely, definitely. Always be humble and keep your mind open for different opinions. That always. Right. Absolutely. Well, listen, uh, Ludovico, it was, uh, it was a great pleasure having you on the show today and getting, you could say, the perspective of somebody who is a lecturer in a master's degree program in blockchain and really unpacking what a lot of that experience is. And because, you know, if mass adoption starts at mass messaging, then in many ways, it's going to have to start with lecturers and teachers. Because, you know, the, you could, yeah, it's going it, to, a lot of the, you could say the responsibility or duty is going to be on how is this going to be communicated in a easy way, but also in a good way where people don't, let's say, misuse it or you could say mischaracterize it, you know, when they tell, when they tell other people. So 
you know, when mass adoption hits, it's going to be at that moment where the messaging is just right. And I think it's going to start in a lot of, you know, universities. It's going to be starting in classrooms of higher education. So, you know, I, I think what you're doing, you know, is going to be the logical good steps for those kind of things to happen. So, you know, again, you know, Ludvika, uh, I had a great time with you on this episode. And it was an absolute pleasure, you know, having you on. And, you know, I'm looking forward to you know, perhaps having you on again in the future and picking up from this conversation. And, you know, perhaps we can understand, are people getting the message? Or is the message getting better? Or is the message correct even? Definitely, definitely. I would say kudos to both of us as putting in an effort to educating and to keeping up the conversation and try to bring the topics to the public. And yeah, thank you so much, Adam, for inviting me. It would be a great pleasure to be back on. I had a lot of fun in this conversation. Likewise. Absolutely. So enjoy the rest of your evening. Have a, you know, have a great week and we'll talk soon. Great, great. Thank you, Adam.